supported by SAF Markets. SAF Markets provides comprehensive analysis and commentary on foreign exchange and asset markets. A multi-asset approach incorporating FX, fixed income, equity, and commodity markets. As nothing is permanent, we strive to get ahead of the curve in an ever-changing world. SAF Markets, getting ahead of the curve. Hello and welcome to In Conversation with Sham Devani, where every so often I will engage in a dialogue with experienced professionals on matters of finance, business and current affairs. My guest today is Kishore Mabubani, who is a former diplomat and academic. After 1971, Kishore joined Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs as a Foreign Service Officer. His earlier postings included Cambodia, Malaysia and the United States. From 1993 to 1998, he held the position of Permanent Secretary at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He went on to serve as Singapore's Permanent Representative to the United Nations and in that role as President of the United Nations Security Council. He was also appointed Dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the University of Singapore. Kishore is also the author of numerous books, the latest of which is called Has China Won? Kishore's breadth of experience in public service, depth of knowledge in international affairs and skill in articulating his thoughts makes him one of the most fascinating strategic thinkers of our time. Kishore, thank you very much for joining me on my podcast. And the very first thing I must say is congratulations on another, what I would describe as a successful book. I don't know whether you yet call it successful. How old is it? When did you publish this? Has China won? It's called April, Has China won? April 2020. So it's about 10 months old now. So this obviously was put together before this COVID pandemic hit proper, mm. uh, which I think we should bear in mind because we'll talk about that. But I have mm. to first say that I would recommend this book, Has China Won, mm. to anybody who's interested in current affairs, international mm. affairs, business, China, America. Now, for some time, a lot of people, and, and I believe yourself, have been referring to the century, the 21st century, as Asia century. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Can you explain? And quite frankly, has COVID-19 confirmed that it already is Asia century? Well, it's, uh, <laughs> it was actually abnormal not to have an Asian century because, you know, from the year one to the year 1820, for 1800 or the last 2000 years, the two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. So uh, you had, uh, in the last 2,000 years, you had two 18 Asian centuries and two Western centuries. So the two Western centuries have been an, a historical aberration. So in the 21st century, we are returning to a 2,000-year-old norm of having Asian century after Asian century. And since Asians uh, make up 55% of the world's population, and include uh, traditionally some of the most talented people in the world, it's, uh, it will be abnormal not to have an Asian century. And this COVID, COVID basically confirmed that this is what is happening. There's a major shift in power taking place between West and East, and there's an East-West divide. Uh, well, I mean, I must say, I was, I, I'm genuinely shocked at how incompetent the advanced societies of the European Union and especially the United States, have been in managing COVID-19. By contrast, uh, it's quite shocking that the East Asian countries, you know, or societies, uh, China, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, 
overall have done much better. And it's shown in the death rates per million in the population, where in East Asia is below 50, 50. And in Europe and the United States, it's in the thousands uh, per million. So it's a huge difference. The pandemic has brought to surface quite a few issues in mm. the West, uh, not just about competency and, and healthcare, but lots of other things, whether they be race relations, for example, the gap between the rich and the poor, as another example. This decline in the West is not just a pandemic thing, is it? It's been something that has been in the making for some time, no? You, you're absolutely right. The West has developed some serious structural challenges uh, that it hasn't been dealing with, especially the United States of America. In the case of the United States, the first structural challenge is that it has become a plutocracy. So it used to be a democracy where you had a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Now, effectively, functionally, the United States has become a plutocracy where you have a government of the 1%, by the 1%, for the 1%. And that's created, uh, as the Nobel laureate Angus Deaton says, a sea of despair among the white working classes who are very angry, and you can see their anger coming out uh, on a daily basis, you know, in, in their lives. And you saw this also in the storming of the U.S. Capitol in uh, January 6, 2021. But there are other structural challenges. Uh, also the, there's also the fact that as a result of Ronald Reagan saying that government is not the solution, government is the problem, the institutions of government, especially in the United States, have been demoralized are defunded, delegitimized, and they've become much weaker. And that's why also, that also explains the uh, incompetent response to COVID-19. And thirdly, I would also mention that the United States especially has spent $5 trillion fighting unnecessary war since 9-11. And if this $5 trillion had been given to the bottom 50% in America whose lives have not been improved, each citizen in the bottom 50% will receive a check for $30,000. Well, that's a raw calculation, isn't it? Because when yeah. they do fight wars, it's not all just cost, is it? Because they manufacture arms, they use them, they employ people. Uh, well, some of the Arguably, money... Arguably, they make money. Yes, some of the money may, uh, may go back, but I think a lot of the money is also wasted. And that's been uh, documented at great length. Okay. There's a misunderstanding, I believe, if, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, from reading your book, this concept of Western exceptionalism has really been tested, hasn't it? Well, I, it, to be fair, it's the Americans who declare themselves exceptional. <laughs> and in some ways, you know, at a time when America was very dominant, when it was the only country and still the only country which could send men to the moon, that could have uh, amazing scientific discoveries, uh, develop world-class corporations like uh, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon in a decade or two. So it, it has been an exceptional country in, in many ways. But in it is also in other ways increasingly a very ordinary country and a very ordinary incompetent country. And and that those are the two sides of the United States that we have to understand if you want to understand America.
You went as far as saying in your book, imagine what America's founding fathers would say about America's current social contract. Absolutely. I mean, the tragedy is that American society, especially American leaders, have forgotten the wisdom of their founding fathers. And, you know, if you look back at the uh, social and political philosophers of Europe and what they emphasize, they spoke about freedom, but they always spoke of freedom and, and equality, always at the same time. Uh, liberté, égalité, right? But the United States, <laughs> some other things that only freedom matters and e uh, equality doesn't matter. And that's why you have this very tragic situation where the bottom 50% in America haven't seen any improvement in their living standards over three decades. And that's tragic. And this is the tragedy that could have been averted with better policies in the society. Okay, on the same token, my question then is to you, because your book is called As China One. It's not all about America. It's a lot about China, obviously. And what do you think Chinese ancestors or generations gone by would say about today's China? <laughs> ancestors of contemporary China. Uh, if they could come alive and see China today, they would be absolutely shocked by how much China has advanced. And it's important to emphasize that in terms of the living conditions of the Chinese people, especially the average Chinese people, the past 40 years of human development, social development, economic development have been the best 40 years in 4,000 years of Chinese history. Right. So the Chinese people are now experiencing a tremendous high in terms of their national development. And the American people, sadly, I mean, we shouldn't celebrate this, uh, hitting a new low in their uh, economic, social and human development. So that's their development within their country. But what about their reputation around the world? That's questionable, isn't it? Certainly. I mean, there, there is a lot of concern about the rise of China. But you've got to make a big distinction between how the 12% of the population who live in the West think of China and the rest of the world think of China. So, for example, if you go to Africa today, and you ask them a very simple question. You are now suffering from COVID-19. You need vaccines. Do you think the United States will send vaccines to you or will China send vaccines to you? Well, I suspect it's going to be the Chinese and or the Indians. Uh, I think the Indians will supply them, but I think it will be very difficult for the Indians to be as generous as the Chinese because the Indian economy is one-fifth the size of the Chinese economy. And remember that in 1980, the Indian economy was the same size as the Chinese economy. Yes, China has come very far. But you talk of Africa as an example. Mm. A lot of them want to restructure their debts with China mm. and are finding themselves in great difficulty. There seems to be a tendency or a mm. pattern emerging, not only in Africa, but in many countries. Mm. If I move slightly east of mm. the African continent, we can talk of examples in Pakistan. We can talk of examples in the Maldives, where they built, I believe, a bridge, but suddenly a submarine turns up mm. and the Indians had to bail out mm. the Maldives. We can talk of Sri Lanka, where they've overtaken a port. We can even go into Myanmar. Uh, there's been many, many cases where their conduct, it, it begs the question, what exactly is going on? Are they using mm. this century of humiliation to justify the replacement of gunboat diplomacy with debt trap mm. diplomacy? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question. 
because it reflects uh, exactly what the conventional wisdom uh, you learn from the Anglo-Saxon media. And so I'm really glad you did that, because if anyone tries to understand contemporary China uh, through the eyes of the Anglo-Saxon media, you get a very distorted and often a false perspective of what is going on. And I'm glad you used the phrase debt trap diplomacy, because I can email you two articles, uh, one by uh, Professor Deborah Brottigam, uh, pointing out that all the stories of debt trap, if you examine them in great detail, are not true. They are false stories. Similarly, Chatham House, uh, UK Chatham House study, on the debt trap diplomacy, again pointing out that it is not true, the stories. It is true that some countries have had difficulties repaying their loans. And a classic example of this is Malaysia. And of course, the Anglo-Saxon media celebrated the fact that Dr. Mahathir, when he became prime minister for the second time, uh, said, uh, I want to read, I will stop the loans to China, loans from China, right? You know what? Within six months, <laughs> he was at the China's Belt and Road Initiative Summit. And he was the, one of the chief guests of honor at that, at that meeting. So what happened to the debt trap diplomacy? And, and, it, and it's true that countries make mistakes. Huh? But, you know, if you look, and I'm glad you mentioned the Sri Lankan port, okay? Now, who, who is now paying the loans that uh, China gave to the Sri Lanka? Is it the Sri Lankans who are paying this? Or is it the Chinese who are not paying it? Because the Chinese have, have been given a, a, a lease of that port and it's now Chinese money paying Chinese loans. The idea, counter to that, is that they wanted the port in the first place. No, actually, to be, to be, to be, completely, to be completely honest, they don't want that port. They don't need that port. Because, you know, it was unfortunately a vanity project by the then uh, Sri Lankan president who wanted to have a port uh, in his constituency. And of course, it was very unwise of the Chinese to invest in it. But the economic price for it is not being paid for by the Sri Lankan people. It's being paid for by the, by the Chinese. What were the Chinese submarines doing in, in the Maldives? Uh, the same reason that you have American submarines, British submarines, uh, French submarines in the Indian Ocean. <laughs> uh, is, uh, and, and also, since you mentioned the Indian Ocean... You should also mention that the World Court, the International Court of Justice, has declared that the American and British occupation of Diego Garcia is illegal, and the World Court has asked US and UK to return Diego Garcia, I think, to Mauritius. So, you know, the, the British and Americans call on the China, China to abide by the rules of the international legal tribunals, but they haven't heeded the judgment of the World Court. I give this as an example mm. of how the Anglo-Saxon media's reporting is distorted and biased. Okay. But there are other examples, Kishore. It's not just going south and mm. southeast. For example, in Australia, there is an island by the name of Keswick Island on the eastern side mm. where a Chinese company called China Bloom has overtaken it, stopped Australians from going on there, closed the jetty, stopped the use of the runway, and uh, stopped the residents from letting their properties out on Airbnb and such. What are they doing there? They're not interested in snorkeling, are they? Well, I mean, I don't know of this specific case, but if Australia cannot apply its own laws on Australian territory, then Australia is a banana republic.
<laughs> Simply as that. Uh, right. I cannot. I cannot imagine how any Chinese company uh, can violate. Uh, they got a ninety-nine-year uh, lease on the island. Well, I mean, whatever it is, uh, the, even if you have a lease, Australian laws, uh, that, that, that territory is not Chinese sovereign territory. That China, that territory is Australian sovereign territory and is subject to Australian laws. Well, I'd like to see what happens, but I think this perhaps is a, is a classic example of a country that has become dependent on China as its major customer and mm. uh, has found itself now in a position over at least the past year, yeah. uh, in a very difficult situation where the Chinese yeah. are flexing their muscles as far as Australia? Uh, actually, is that, that, what, that, is that, that the that, right that, way of reading it, or would you read it differently? <laughs> I, I'm happy to recommend to you a 5,000 word essay which I wrote called Australia's Destiny in the Asian Century, since we began with the Asian Century. And the Australians now have, they face a tremendous dilemma because their heart is with the West, yeah. but their wallet is in the East. And they've got to choose between their heart and their wallet. And, and of course, they can, they, they, I mean, they have complete freedom to stop exporting their goods to China. And if they want to do so, no one can stop them from doing so. But Australia, on the one hand, you know, the, the, the Americans have this adage, as you know, you know, I saw a book called Seven Habits of Successful People in Your House. You know, the, the old American adage is that the customer is king. And the most unwise thing you can do is to slap your biggest customer in the face. So China happens to be Australia's biggest customer. And Australia has decided to slap China in the face by publicly calling for an inquiry into what happened in Wuhan. Uh, and certainly the call for such, such an inquiry is justified. But it's very unwise to publicly humiliate your number one customer. And of course, when you do that, if you run a business and you insult your number one customer, you get business consequences, which is that's what, exactly what's happening to Australia. Well, fair enough. But when you've got a pandemic, surely it takes a bit more than the, uh, a request to look at what's going on in Wuhan to hmm. be so humiliated so easily. They're not that sensitive, surely. Well, I think it's a question of how you do it. And I think it, if Australia could move its geography and go to North America and be, can behave like a North American country, it would no problem. But it is now geographically located in Asia. And you notice that other Asian countries don't insult other Asian countries because in Asia, saving face is so important. And if you want to do business in Asia, you make sure that your customer uh, doesn't lose face. And so it's at this time for Australia to understand that if it is geographically part of Asia, it's got to culturally understand Asia. And Australia, unfortunately, has made no effort whatsoever to understand Asia. And is, in its ignorance, is now demonstrating in its poor behavior. That's the example of the Australian way. But for quite some time, I, I've heard a lot of European, generally Western leaders, talking about how they ought to have a China strategy. Hmm. But I've never actually heard one. <laughs> <laughs> so my question here is, what should a China strategy from a Western or any nation, what should it look like? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, uh, I think the first thing they should do is read my book, Has China Won? Okay. Because one of the key arguments of my book is that the biggest strategic mistake that the United States has made is that it has launched a geopolitical contest against China 
without first working out a strategy. And as you know, since you read the book, that that insight was given to me by America's greatest living strategic thinker, Henry Kissinger, at a one-on-one lunch I had with him in March 2018 in New York. And I also got his permission to cite him in the book. So what is the United States doing launching a geopolitical contest against a country that is four times the population of the United States and with a history of, let's say, 4,000 years, that's much older than the 250-year-old American Republic. How can you just launch a contest without looking at the big picture very carefully? So my, my, the goal of my book is actually help to help the United States to understand the adversaries dealing with and to work out a more thoughtful, long-term, comprehensive strategy on how to manage the rise of China. And so, for example, if the United States thinks it can push back China's development and make China once again one-tenth the size of the United States, that won't happen again. The reality is that China's GNP will become bigger than America's GNP within 10 to 15 years. It's already bigger in PPP terms, but it'll become bigger in nominal terms. Mm. So the United States should sit back and thoughtfully work out a comprehensive strategy that will benefit the American people and not damage the American people. Do you think the new president is uh, capable of this task? Well, I think certainly Joe Biden is a massive improvement over Donald Trump. I mean, he will certainly be more civil and uh, polite in his dealings with China. But at the same time, because a very strong anti-China consensus has been built up in the uh, uh, body politic in the United States, especially in Washington, D.C., Biden's hands are tight and it will be difficult for him to make a U-turn and adopt more reasonable policies towards China. Is it in Asia's interest to continue to have strong American presence here? Uh, it's absolutely in Asia's interest to have a strong American presence here. Uh, it would be terrible to have uh, the presence of an America that is weakened in the region. And so American credibility in this region will depend ultimately not on the number of aircraft carriers or uh, destroyers or jet fighters it has in the region. It will depend ultimately on the economic power uh, of the United States. So it is actually in the interest of this region to see America come back and engage this region economically. Therefore, it was a huge strategic mistake for Trump to walk away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. Because that's the way, that's the the best way of anchoring America's presence in this region. And by contrast, of course, it was very wise of uh, China and this region to sign the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership to boost trade in this region. Because the great game in this region is not a military game, it's a trade and economics game. Well, I do want to talk about RCEP in a moment. But just before we go on to that, you know, the, just two weeks ago, Al Jazeera has reported that China authorizes Coast Guard to fire on foreign vessels. Mm. There is a need for a balancing act in military terms, isn't there? Because yes. these borders, they're contested. By the way, I think all Coast Guards have the authority to fire at foreign vessels. Well, then <laughs> there's, what is, no, what is no the way. need for passing this thing then? It's, <laughs> about, it's about where the line is drawn. It's just, it's just putting on paper uh, uh, what is a reality. But, you know, it's important to... When you, when you look at uh, China's behavior in the South China Sea, and certainly China has made huge mistakes in the South China Sea, hmm. but, you know, if you read a book on U.S.-China relations by Graham Allison, Graham Allison says that many Americans say that we wish that China could be like us. 
Graham Allison said, be careful what we wish for, because China today, in terms of its emergence as a great power, is exactly where the United States was in the 1890s. And as Graham Allison said, if you look at page 88 of my book, Graham Allison says, you know, when America was emerging, you know what it did? It declared war on Spain, it conquered the Philippines, it seized Guam, it seized Puerto Rico, it kicked out UK, it kicked out Germany, it declared war on Colombia, it seized Panama. Come on. That's how the United States behaved when it emerged as a great power. So, you know, if you look at it, relatively speaking, China's rise, compared to all its historical predecessors, has been amazingly peaceful so far. Because China hasn't fought a war in 40 years, and China actually hasn't fired a bullet in 30 years since the skirmish uh, with Vietnam. And of course, what happened at the Sino-Indian border was tragic. But, you know, these are all the facts that, surprisingly, the Anglo-Saxon media doesn't highlight. Well, two things. The, the people of Tibet will disagree with you because they had to f uh, sign a 17-point plan under duress. And quite mm. frankly, after His Holiness the Dalai Lama passes away, that's China. Well, and secondly, uh, it's not necessarily about the last 40 years. It's yeah. about what they're going to do in the next 40. Can I ask you a simple technical question? Mm. I don't which know if I'm country, going to have the answer. <laughs> which country in the world recognizes Tibet as an independent country? I don't know. Zero. Okay, but is it Chinese? You no, know, I can tell you Should that United. Let me answer the question: United States, United Kingdom, the European Union, India, Japan—you uh, name it. Every country in the world recognizes that Tibet is part of China. In your mind, the Chinese are simply not expansionist. The, by by ex, ex, the word expansionist means that you seize territory that is not part of your national territory. And so far, since uh, 1945, the Chinese have not militarily seized any territory outside their national territory. Okay, and okay. even Hong Kong and Macau went back peacefully uh, to China. By contrast, by the way, this is an important historical fact. In the 19, around 1960, President John F. Kennedy and Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, wrote a letter to the Anglophile Prime Minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru, and told him, please don't invade Goa. You know how Nehru replied? He sent in his troops and seized Goa. Mm -hmm. So you can see, so what did, did, was what Nehru did expansionist? It's a bit different, that, or, isn't it? Because it's part of that continent. It's part of the land. There was a whole change in India taking place. It's a bit odd to have one country with the exception of Goa that's linked well, to Well, Hong Kong and Macau are exactly the same as Goa. Um, let's go on to ASEP. You mentioned mm. earlier. Because uh, this regional comprehensive economic partnership of 15 countries, in your book, you described India as not being pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Uh, uh, certainly in, in its uh, economic policies is not uh, pragmatic enough. And, and, I, and I must emphasize, I want India to succeed. Yeah, let, let me just clarify for the audience uh. that uh, this, these 15 countries excludes India. India is not part of RCEP as oh, it stands. India was part of RCEP negotiations for 10 years. Yeah. And all the other members still hope that India will join yeah. uh, RCEP. So the door is kept open for India uh, to join RCEP anytime. And I actually believe that it's in India's national interest 
uh, to join RCEP because my experience with Indians in every country around the world, and I have first cousins in uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Guyana, Suriname, Japan, Hong Kong, Mumbai, Calcutta, mm. <laughs> and they, my, all my first cousins succeed in business everywhere around the world. So I, I do. If Indians can compete in every uh, in every economy in the world, why can't Indians compete in Indian economy? And and the reason why they don't they cannot compete is because they've been deprived of competition. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 in India's interest to welcome international competition because India will do very well in international competition, and India will do very well eventually in RCEP too. Okay, okay. Let's have a deeper look at RCEP and the fifteen countries that are in there because mm. the vast majority of them, nearly all, mm. are exporting nations, with the exception of two small countries. They've all got current uh, account surpluses. So as a group, it's an exporting group. Mm. The buyers of the goods that they produce have to come from big countries because they're obviously producing a lot. So we're talking about the United States of America, mm. we're talking about Europe as a continent, and we're talking about potentially India. Obviously, America has its problems with China. Mm. Europe has its economic problems uh, at the moment, pretty bad. Mm. But if we were to take a long-term view mm. of where future consumers will come from you've got a young thriving population in india a country that's got pretty good growth rates it is in rcep's interest to have india part of it mm. as an importing country and the question really is i flip it on its head are the chinese pragmatic mm. in having poor relations with india Isn't it in their interest to have better relations with India from an economic perspective? Because RCEP, who are they going to sell to? Well, that's, a, that's a, actually a very good question, I must say. I congratulate you on the question and I commend you for saying that you should pay attention to where the markets are. So let me give you some data. In the year 2009, uh, the size of the retail goods market in China was $1.8 trillion. And the one in the United States was four trillion, more than double that of China's 2009. Now you fast forward to 2019, which is 10 years later, and and 2019 is a significant year. This is because this is after three years of the trade war, where the Trump administration put tariff after tariff and sanction after sanction on the Chinese economy, trying to weaken the Chinese economy. And guess what? Ten uh, years later, the size of the retail goods market. In uh, China, had gone up from 1.8 trillion to six uh, trillion dollars, and we gone up three times. And by the way, just the retail goods market is bigger than India's economy. And then the in in the United States, the retail goods market went up from four trillion to 5.5 trillion, an increase of 1.5 times. So if you're looking, if you're running any major company in the world, and you're looking for growth markets, you don't find them anymore. In Europe or in the United States, you find the growth markets in China and in Southeast Asia. And, and ASEAN, by the way, is a far more attractive market than the Indian market is uh, uh, in terms of consumers and so on and so forth. So at the same time, and this is exactly why if India wants to succeed, India should be learning from East Asia to find out why have East Asian countries succeeded. And the simple answer is that the East Asian countries have succeeded because because they have opened up their economies, globalized and competed with the whole world. And if India does the same thing, India will have an economy which is much bigger than China's. Right. And so maybe at some future date they can join RCEP and it will be a much happier club. 
Yes. <laughs> One of the most fascinating conclusions from your book was the idea, sort of long-term thinking, that there could be some form of better alliance or working relation, or dare I call it partnership, between Russia and the West, mm. which I found fascinating. It's, it's a little bit difficult to imagine. Mm. Where does that come from? What makes you yeah. say that? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it is not Kishore Mabubani saying this. It's <laughs> great Russian thinkers from Leo Tolstoy have been saying it that Russia's destiny is in Europe. <laughs> and it was reiterated as recently as Gorbachev when he spoke of a common house of Europe, including Russia and uh, Europe working together. And unfortunately, the United States and some European Union members killed the vision of a common European house by expanding NATO into former territories that were part of the, the area of influence of the Soviet Union. And so they, the Russians have felt threatened by the expansion of NATO. And this has become the main source of division between uh, Russia and United States and Russia and Europe. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you in private, many say that this uh, expansion of NATO was a disaster. But some have said it publicly. Tom Friedman yeah. uh, of the New York Times has said it publicly that the expansion of NATO was a big mistake because it alienated Russia. Right. You're speculating that this difficult relationship may... Reverse? Do you know, in my book, I've stuck my neck out <laughs> <laughs> and made a very uh, dangerous prediction because at the end of the day, if you are the leader of Russia, the biggest threat to Russia is no longer going to come from either the Germans or the French. Do you know, Hitler and Napoleon invaded <laughs> Moscow. <laughs> is it going to come from so, China? So it's not, it's, it's, oh no, but Russia has the longest border with China. Right. So it's in Russia's interest to develop uh, friends uh, who will help it counterbalance China in the long run. And so at some point in time, uh, Russia and, and the West will come together. Fantastic. Kishore, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.